Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 14th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Trump is ordered to do a deposition under oath. Alex Jones is ordered to pay $965 million to Sandy Hook families. Drones strike the Kyiv region as the UN condemns Russia. Putin offers to resume gas supplies to Europe. A Syrian bus blast kills 18 soldiers. Iraq elects a new president. The January 6th committee conducts its hearing before the midterms. An L.A. councilwoman resigns over racist remarks. A Pfizer executive says that before the rollout, they didn't test if their COVID vaccines reduced transmission. And human brain cells are implanted in rats. In our top story, a judge says that Donald Trump must sit for a deposition in the defamation lawsuit. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Guardian, PBS NewsHour, CNN, and Business Insider. On Wednesday, U.S. District Judge Louis A. Kaplan rejected former President Trump's request for delayed testimony, instead ordering him to answer questions under oath on October 19th in a defamation lawsuit lodged by writer E. Jean Carroll. Carol, a longtime columnist for Elle magazine, says Trump sexually assaulted her in an upscale Manhattan department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. She filed a lawsuit in 2019 saying Trump defamed her with his public denials. Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, responded, quote, We look forward to establishing on the record that this case is, and always has been, without merit. Meanwhile, Carol's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, stated she was looking forward to, quote, moving forward to trial with all dispatch. Judge Kaplan criticized Trump's efforts to delay the lawsuit and his production of virtually no documents, saying, quote, the defendant should not be permitted to run the clock out on plaintiff's attempt to gain a remedy for what allegedly was a serious wrong. Carol's attorney also reasserted Carol will be suing Trump again next month under a new New York law called the Adult Survivors Act that opens up the statute of limitations on old abuse cases. Thank you for the facts on that story, Eric. On this show, we separate facts from narrative spins. And let's get into those narratives now, starting with a Democratic narrative from The Atlantic. You can add this case to the long list of legal troubles Trump is currently facing. Unfortunately, it seems that no matter the number, the chances that any of these cases will be successful are slim to none, which will only encourage his followers. The only absolute protection against him is the ballot box and the hope he doesn't return to a position of power in the future. And Fox News gives us a pro-Trump narrative. While these are serious accusations, they are just that, allegations. This lawsuit against Trump for defending himself is nothing more than an attempt to grasp at straws after Carroll's failed book that smeared Trump's name and conflicting narratives. It remains to be seen whether these allegations are true. Until then. It's innocent until proven guilty. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from our friends at Metaculus, which says there's an 18% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. In our next story, Alex Jones is ordered to pay $965 million to Sandy Hook families. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, The Daily Wire, NBC, Daily Mail, CNN, and Fox News. 
A Connecticut jury decided on Wednesday that InfoWars founder Alex Jones should pay $965 million to individuals who suffered from his claim that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax. Jones' trial lasted three weeks and included testimony from the parents of victims, school employees, and an FBI agent who responded to the shooting. The case itself was a consolidation of three separate suits. Jones was prosecuted for defamation, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and infringements of Connecticut's Unfair Trade Practices Act for his claim that the mass shooting was staged. This case is the largest defamation suit damages figure in U.S. history, eclipsing a 1997 suit in which a brokerage company sued the Wall Street Journal and won $222.7 million. Over the summer, Jones filed for bankruptcy via his main company, Free Speech Systems. The decision comes two months after a different jury in Texas decided that Jones and his company should pay two Sandy Hook parents almost $50 million. That judge will assess whether to lower the punitive damages sought under Texas law this month. Six adults and 20 children were killed during the shooting in December of 2012 in Newton, Connecticut. For years after, Jones claimed that the shooting had been staged and the families were crisis actors. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. We do have a few spins that have emerged, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative, and it's being provided by Daily Kos. Not only did Jones flagrantly disrespect the families of the children who died at Sandy Hook, but he also profited from it. After almost 10 years, justice has been served, as Jones will likely lose his media empire which is a dangerous hotbed of conspiracy theories and disinformation. Hopefully, this trial will set a precedent that individuals can't spout vitriolic nonsense that harms victims of tragic events for political and financial gain. And there's an establishment critical narrative on this story, oh, from InfoWars itself. This is a sad day for freedom of speech in the U.S. The American political elite doesn't want the public asking questions especially regarding things that may counter the dominant narrative around gun control and other civil liberties. Like him or hate him, Jones has a right to freedom of speech and to explore the political class anti-American narratives. And a nerd narrative says there's a 1% chance that Alex Jones will ever hold high federal office in the U.S. before the year 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, we take a look at day 232 of the Ukraine conflict, as the Kyiv region has been hit by drone strikes and the UN General Assembly votes to condemn Russian annexations. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, Independent, Pravda, and Yenisafek. Ukraine's capital and its surrounding region were hit by Iranian-made Shahid-136 kamikaze drones early on Thursday, officials said. Kirilo Timoshenko, the deputy head of the Ukrainian presidential office, said, quote, critical infrastructure facilities were targeted but didn't specify which. There were no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. The attack came shortly after the UN General Assembly overwhelmingly voted to condemn Russia's annexation of four regions of Ukraine on Wednesday by a margin of 143 to 5, with 35 abstentions. Russia, Syria, Nicaragua, North Korea, and Belarus voted against, while abstentions came from countries including China, India, Pakistan, and South Africa. The General Assembly resolution, which labeled the annexations illegal and called on Russia to withdraw from all Ukrainian territories, is the third criticizing the Russian invasion. 
Unlike UN Security Council resolutions, where Russia has veto power, General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. Meanwhile, further Russian attacks were reported in the regions of Mykolaiv, where one civilian was reported killed and seven others were still missing, and Zaporizhia, where nine civilians were reported injured. Strikes were also reported in Sumy, where three electrical stations were allegedly destroyed, and in the Nikopol district of Dnipropetrovsk, where one civilian was reported injured. The attacks came as defense ministers from NATO countries came together for a meeting of the nuclear planning group at the alliance's headquarters in Brussels on Thursday. Its agenda includes NATO nuclear drills planned for next week, as well as the strength of Ukraine's missile defense capabilities. Elsewhere, Russian President Vladimir Putin held sideline talks with Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan at an economic conference in the Kazakh capital of Astana. Ahead of their meeting, Erdogan said his goal was to, quote, stop the bloodshed as soon as possible. It is expected that the Turkish leader will again suggest that he play a role in negotiating a peace settlement between Russia and Ukraine. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that story. We'll start this next section with a pro-establishment narrative, and this comes from The Guardian. Wednesday's U.N. General Assembly vote issues a clear message to Russia from the rest of the world. Moscow cannot expand its borders by brute force or illegally annex foreign territory through unjustified occupation. And the pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. Western nations only achieved this anti-Russian resolution by threatening developing countries with all sorts of punishments if they fail to support their aggression. Russia is well aware that other nations are employing diplomatic terror tactics in order to target the Kremlin. And the nerds are speaking on this story. From Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss peace by December 13, 2022. In our next story, Putin offers to resume gas supplies to Europe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Euro, the Associated Press, Business Insider, Reuters, and the EU Observer. Russian President Putin on Wednesday offered to restart gas deliveries to Europe via the undamaged parts of Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Speaking at the 5th Russian Energy Week International Forum in Moscow, he said it was now up to the EU to decide whether it wanted supplies to resume. The Russian president called the explosions that led to gas leaks on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines an act of international terrorism. Putin again accused the U.S. of likely being responsible for the explosions to force Europe to buy more expensive liquefied natural gas from the U.S., accusations Washington vehemently denies. However, one of the two Nord Stream 2 pipelines remains pressurized and could likely resume deliveries, he said. Putin also proposed diverting Nord Stream gas supplies from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea region, making Turkey the largest gas hub for Europe. Turkish Energy Minister Fatih Donmez said he had no prior knowledge of the proposal, saying, quote, These are things that need to be discussed. In response to Putin's offer, the German government ruled out receiving gas through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. However, a spokesperson added that Russia could still resume gas supplies via Nord Stream 1, which isn't under an embargo. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, at an informal meeting of the EU energy ministers in Prague, the group discussed measures to curb high energy prices. Although no agreement could be reached on price caps, EU nations reportedly reached a general consensus on the combined purchase of gas before next summer. Those were the facts as we take a look at the spins from this story with an anti-Russian narrative coming from Time. 
While energy prices are skyrocketing in Europe, Putin's hypocritical offer is the latest proof of how cynically Moscow weaponizes gas exports. But Putin has massively miscalculated, as Moscow is virtually forcing Europe to pursue energy independence, and Russia is already losing market shares to Algeria, Qatar, and Azerbaijan. And the pro-Russia narrative is provided by RT. The fact that Putin's offer to resume gas deliveries is falling on deaf ears shows that Brussels and Berlin are no longer pursuing a rational policy. For EU citizens, this is terrible news ahead of winter. And while the EU is serving U.S. interests, things don't look good for Europe in the long run. And there's a nerd narrative. It says there's a 50% chance that Russia will produce at least 9.48 million barrels of oil per day in 2023. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, we move to Syria, where a military bus blast kills 18 soldiers. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Middle East Eye, and BBC News. At least 18 soldiers were killed and 27 injured on Thursday when an explosive device detonated on a military bus in the Damascus countryside, according to local Syrian media. No group has claimed responsibility for the attack, and Syrian authorities haven't directly commented on it as of yet. This bus bombing is one of the deadliest attacks in months against Syrian government troops not actively engaged in the front lines of battle. Bus attacks have been on the rise, including in and around Damascus. A bombing nearly a year ago killed 14 soldiers near Jasir al-Rays in the center of Damascus. Thursday's attack is the latest violence in Syria's catastrophic 11-year-old war. Around 500,000 people have died in the conflict. We've got two spins on this story, and we'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from MEI. The war in Syria began when the Assad regime brutally cracked down on peaceful protesters calling for freedom and dignity. His country lies in ruin and violence continues, even in Damascus, which was cleared of rebel forces in 2018. Indeed, some analysts are even saying that the opposition may soon see a resurgence. And the establishment critical narrative is courtesy of Al Monitor. This attack against the government is another terrorist operation by the so-called opposition. Extremists also attacked Syrian government forces in other parts of the country. Thankfully, the government can manage such attacks and maintain Syria's stability and security, including from the meddling of actors undermining Assad's legitimate government. The Iraqi parliament elects Abdul Latif Rashid as the new president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Al Arabia, Middle East Eye, Shafak, Daily Sabah, and the New York Times. On Thursday, Iraqi lawmakers elected Kurdish politician Abdul Latif Rashid as the country's new president, re reportedly garnering more than 160 votes against 99 for the incumbent Barham Salih in a runoff. This comes after three failed attempts to elect a new president, which must be occurred according to Iraq's power-sharing political system, earlier this year, as the Kurdish Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan couldn't agree on a joint candidate. After being formally elected, President Rashid offered a mandate to Iran-aligned coordination framework's Mohammad Shia al-Sudani to form a government and replace caretaker Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadimi. Al-Sudani has served as minister in two separate cabinets since joining politics in 2003 and was chosen as the coordination framework candidate for the premiership after the mass resignation of the Satirist Movement members of parliament. 
Mass protests erupted when al-Sudani was first proposed as a candidate during Iraq's year-long political deadlock, with followers of Muqtada al-Sadir breaching Baghdad's green zone and storming the parliament. As lawmakers gathered Thursday to vote, nine Katyusha rockets hit the green zone and other parts of Baghdad. Prime Minister Kadimi and Sadir's aide Hassan al-Hadari condemned the attacks, which reportedly saw at least three people injured and damaged buildings and vehicles. Thank you for the facts of that story, Melissa. We do have a couple of spins that have emerged, and we start with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Press TV. The election of Rashid and his immediate designation of al-Sudani to form a government marks the end of the long-lasting political deadlock in Iraq, which was caused by the satirist movement's undemocratic actions. There's still a long way to go, but Iraq is now on the right path to solving its problems. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by Al Jazeera. This election might resolve Iraq's political deadlock, but it likely won't be the solution needed to move away from Iraq's defunct political system. Evidence of this is seen in Rashid's first move as president, with the immediate appointment of al-Sudani, which will only cause more unrest and will do little to move away from Iraq's ethno-sectarian power-sharing system. In our next story, the January 6th committee conducts a last hearing before the midterms. And here are the facts as agreed upon by L.A. Times, New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, and CNBC. After a three-month break, the U.S. House January 6th Committee on Thursday met for its last reported hearing before the midterms. Focused primarily on Trump's mindset, the panel covered topics such as Trump's plans to declare victory before all ballots were counted and his alleged acknowledgement of losing despite publicly claiming victory. The committee unveiled an email from the head of Judicial Watch, Tom Fitton, to former Trump assistants urging the former president to declare victory based on the ballots counted on Election Day while disregarding incoming mail-in ballots. Committee member Representative Zoe Lofgren, Democrat of California, called it evidence of a, quote, premeditated plan. The committee also revealed new evidence related to the Secret Service's knowledge of threats before the riot. Committee member Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, asserted that the Secret Service was aware of threats and had reports of armed protesters on January 6th, but neither changed its plans on protecting the president or vice president. Committee member Representative Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, detailed a memo described by committee witness testimony. Trump signed after the election that called for the withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Afghanistan and Somalia. Kinzinger claimed it was a move only an outgoing president would make. Committee member Representative Elaine Luria, Democrat of Virginia, covered the topic of voting machines, showing video of top Justice Department officials, campaign aides, and advisors testifying that they told Trump his fraudulent ballot theories were baseless. Video of Trump continuing to spread the theory in his, quote, Stop the Steal speech was then played. The nine-member committee ended the hearing by voting unanimously to subpoena Trump. Committee co-chair Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, who proposed the vote, said that of the roughly 30 witnesses who have so far pleaded the Fifth Amendment, several did so in direct response to questions surrounding their dealings with Trump. Thank you for that wealth of facts on this story, Eric. We've got a couple spins, of course, on this political story. We'll start with the Democratic narrative from The Washington Post. Make no mistake, what's on the ballot in November is democracy itself. The January 6th committee has issued this dire warning to the American people by taking the extraordinary step of issuing a subpoena to Trump. The Democrats are putting stop the steal 
under the most intense limelight it can. In a few weeks, voters must cast ballots for legislators, governors, and secretaries of state in one of the most crucial contests in American history. And a pro-Trump narrative coming from Fox News. The Democrats know that they are in deep trouble as the midterms approach. Inflation is sky high, the southern border is out of control, and the left's January 6th witch hunt is full of fallacies. The thought of subpoenaing Trump is intended to be a political theater from the Democrats. But to their demise, the former president may be delighted to take the mic and speak the truth. And there's a nerd narrative on this story. From Metaculus, it says there's a 30% chance that any state will refuse to certify its election results during the 2024 U.S. presidential election. An L.A. councilwoman resigns over racist remarks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the L.A. Times, The New York Times, CNN, NBC, PBS NewsHour, and Washington Post. Nuri Martinez on Wednesday announced her resignation from the L.A. City Council following leaked year-old audio in which she can be heard making apparently racist comments while talking with other Latino political leaders. Her decision to step down comes as protesters packed the council chamber for the second day in a row, and politicians, including President Biden, called for her resignation. Earlier this week, Martinez renounced her leadership position and took a leave of absence. During a conversation involving two other council members, Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon, and the president of L.A. County Federation of Labor, Ron Herrera, in October 2021, Martinez allegedly stated that white councilman Mike Bonin's young black son, quote, was like a monkey and needed a beatdown. She has also reportedly derided indigenous Mexican immigrants of Oaxacan descent as, quote, short, dark people and ugly. Meanwhile, California Attorney General Rob Bonta has opened an investigation into the city of L.A.'s redistricting process to help restore confidence as the leaked audio has revealed an alleged scheme to protect Latino strength in council districts. This incident is also seen as potentially exposing fractures in the Latino-Black political coalition in Los Angeles, as the city's demographics have changed, sharpening disputes within the partnership. Thank you for the facts of that story, Melissa. We do have a couple of spins that have emerged, and the Republican narrative is the first one coming from New York Post. While this scandal has shocked public opinion and provoked national outrage, Nuri Martinez and her colleagues represent the true nature of so-called progressive politicians. Despite their appealing rhetoric, they are often identity-obsessed racists who simply use black people to advance their own agenda and win elections. And the Los Angeles Times brings us a democratic narrative. The leaked recording shows that Gen Z and millennial Latinos must become politically active to promote multiracial solidarity. Disputes between groups of color have long been promoted in white supremacy and American political culture on older generations, with Martinez's remarks being a product of U.S. colonialism across Latin America. And there is a nerd narrative. It says there is a 50 percent chance that at least 11 percent of black voters will vote for a Republican president in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. And that's coming from the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, a Pfizer executive says that COVID vaccines were not tested on transmission before rollout. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Caller, the European Parliament Multimedia Center, Politico, Daily Wire, and Nature. A senior Pfizer executive told a committee of the European Parliament on Monday 
that its COVID vaccine wasn't tested for preventing transmission of the virus before the company began its global rollout of the vaccine. Janine Small, Pfizer's president of the International Developed Markets, made the admission in response to a question from conservative Dutch member of the European Parliament, Bob Roos. Quote, was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? Roos said. If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. In response, Small said, quote, regarding the question, did we know about stopping immunization before it entered the market? No. She added, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. Small had appeared in the place of Pfizer chief executive Albert Bourla, who was expected to face scrutiny after a report from the European Court of Auditors found that he personally negotiated vaccine contracts with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen via text message. Following the hearing, Roos released a video in which he called the actions of Pfizer shocking, even criminal. Pfizer hasn't issued a response. Transmission studies are among the hardest to do, according to experts, and require the study of both individuals and larger populations. The efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine in preventing transmission was investigated after the vaccine rollout. Those were the facts on this interesting medical story. The establishment critical narrative here is provided by Red State. The admission from Pfizer is scandalous. The company and countless other officials, including from the Biden administration, claimed vaccines prevented transmission. Biden and others went further by shaming those who didn't get vaccinated, stating they put the wider community at risk. This assertion was not correct and undermined public confidence. And Golf Insider gives us the pro-establishment narrative. Ruse's accusations heavily distort the facts. During the very early stages of the pandemic, trials had a primary outcome of reducing the risk of severe disease, not transmission. However, virus transmission was researched later. And, as expected, vaccines helped with this too, though it was never promised they would stop it completely. Context is vital here. mRNA vaccines protect people from COVID. In a brain study, human cells are implanted into rats. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, The Independent, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, The Washington Post, and NPR Online News. A study published in the journal Nature on Wednesday announced that scientists have successfully transplanted human brain cells into the brains of baby rats to study human brain development and diseases that affect complex human organs. The work will reportedly help further research into mental disorders such as autism and schizophrenia, with scientists confident that they'll be able to grow and alter brain tissue in these, quote, living laboratories and see how the changes influence the rodent's behavior. Professor Sergiu Pasca, who led the research at Stanford University, said, quote, Psychiatric disorders are a huge burden on society, and it's very, very clear that we need better models for studying them, adding, We see patients and patients' families that are desperate. There's no time to waste. Stem cells, which can grow to be any cell in the body, were connected to form clumps known as organoids. In one experiment, these were used to study the genetic disease Timothy syndrome, which causes a form of autism and is linked to severe heart problems. Researchers were able to alter the rat's behavior, such as making them light-sensitive. Scientists inserted the human brain tissue into the rats using syringes without removing any parts of the rodent's brains. After the cells began to grow, they pushed aside the natural rat tissue 
and after six months, the tissue expanded to become roughly one-third of the hemisphere of the rat's brain. Paula Arloda, a prominent brain organoid research at Harvard University, acknowledged that scientists would need to follow new developments in the study, consider the results, and further discuss the ethical and societal implications of the work. Melissa, thank you for the facts of this interesting story where we have three spins that have emerged, beginning with Narrative A coming from Technology Review. This is an important step forward in understanding psychiatric disorders, but the research is a double-edged sword. While it paves the way to a new understanding of human brains, it also opens the door to serious ethical questions, such as the creation of an enhanced, humanized rat. Scientists need to proceed cautiously. And Narrative B comes from France 24. This cutting-edge research is a goldmine that brings our ability to study human brain development, evolution, and disease to uncharted territory. While it certainly poses ethical questions, particularly surrounding the humanization of rats, natural limitations control how deeply human neurons integrate with rats' brains. This is exciting news. And Narrative C comes from Smithsonian Magazine. Studies using lab rats are unethical and inhumane. Rats make up around 95% of lab animals, are kept in shoebox-sized cages, and are often terminated via lethal injection, decapitation, or suffocation by carbon dioxide gas after they've served their scientific purpose. It's time to turn to more humane methods, such as Harvard's organ on a chip. Can you imagine what it's going to be like buying a human-sized rat trap? Wait, wait, wait. Is a humanized rat going to be the size of a human? Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 14th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.